Hello and welcome to the October 2016 podcast. Lovely to have you along once more. The magic season's well underway now after its summer recess and I always know when the magic season starts because in September there's a meeting of the CCC which stands for the Cumbrian Conjurers Collective a mystical and strange organisation which uh, only a few are aware of. Well, yes, it's sort of something like that. What it actually is, it's a collection of myself and three of my long-standing magical friends, Chris Payne, Paul Prager and Stuart Bowie. And the four of us, once a year, like to get together and immerse ourselves for two or three days in magic chat, performance and discussion. It all started a, a few years ago when we were all attending the South Shields, South Tyneside Convention, South Shields. And Stuart, who used, like the rest of us, to live in the southwest of England, he moved up to Cumbria. And so because we'd all attended the convention, it made sense that we would go across to Cumbria and we would visit him. And we descended upon him and stayed for two or three days. And we enjoyed the experience of immersing ourselves in magic chat and performance uh, for two or three days so much that we uh, have repeated it each year since. And it is fantastic because I think when we've all known each other for getting on for 40 years now, and over that time, of course, we've discussed magic endlessly between the four of us. We've had so many interesting discussions. And I think when you're trying to work on some new material, you've either an act or just an individual trick, and you get so far in your own thoughts, but you really do sometimes need to bounce it off somebody else. And the CCC gives us this, the right environment to do that. Um, it, we have a lot of fun, we have a lot of laughs, but we can also have serious discussions and help each other to forward our magic in, in all sorts of different ways. And nobody is ever trying to outdo somebody else or give bad advice or, or, or make fun of them for trying something. It's a very supportive atmosphere. And as such, it's a fantastic way to, get, to make real progress. I've always thought that it's really important to have some close friends in magic, especially if you're trying to create stuff, who can give you honest feedback. Because it's very difficult, unless you know somebody very well, it's very difficult to give honest feedback to somebody. They say, what do you think of my act? And if you really didn't like it, or it was just not really good enough, but you don't like to say so, how, how do you express without offending or, or upsetting somebody? When you know them really well, you find ways to tell them what you need to tell them and nobody takes offence. So the CCC, as I say, meets, meets once a year and uh, it really is something that I look forward to. And because it's in September, it always feels like the start of the new magic season is marked by it. Well, they say that a week is a long time in politics. Well, a month can be a long time in magic too. And last month in the podcast, I spent quite a bit of time explaining to you all about Stan Allen's plans for the sort of finishing of Magic magazine and the 25 issues called Legacy, which he planned to release over the next two years as a way of doing a final sign off to the whole Magic magazine project. Well, one month on and unfortunately all those plans have been cast asunder because unfortunately um, Stan has not been able to get the response and the support from the buying public if you like from the readership that he'd hoped and he has therefore had to cancel the whole legacy project. I think this is a huge pity because I'm sure it would have with the people that he had lined up to, to do, make the contributions 
and the way that he was going to put it all together. I'm sure he's very disappointed that he simply couldn't get enough people prepared to pay the $250 required to get the whole set in order to make the whole thing happen. Um, he did has produced a, um, a little video which you can watch in which he explains the reasons why it's not been possible to go ahead. And he has instead decided just to do one more issue of Magic magazine itself, just in order just to say goodbye, because he, he had 300 issues, that was very neat, but of course, because it was so sudden, the decision, at least ostensibly it was very sudden, the decision to stop, he never had a proper chance to say thanks and goodbye. And the last issue, which will be coming out, he didn't say exactly when, sometime in the next four weeks or so, uh, will be that last issue. The thing that he's really uh, enthused by, though, and still in, uh, keen to continue with, is Magic Live. And... Whereas last month he was saying that it was going to be in two years' time, now he doesn't want to wait that long. Since the other project's not going ahead, he's decided to pull Magic Live one year earlier, so it'll be in August 2017 instead. If you go to the Magic website, Magic Magazine website, you can uh, watch the video and Stan will explain all the, the various implications. And also, if you're a current subscriber, he'll explain how you get refunds and, and things like that for un, uh, undelivered copies of the magazine. But what I think this, this illustrated to me is that um, even given Magic's, Magic Magazine's huge impact over the last um, 25 or, or more years, the way that so many people around the world have read it, it's interesting that even with all that background, when Stan tried to do this, this special set, this legacy, that he couldn't get the support... And maybe it is a reflection perhaps on the state of publishing generally or maybe just the, the attitude of magicians to published material that has caused this situation to occur. Either way, I think it's a bit sad, really. A few weeks back, I received an email completely out of the blue from a company who were setting up uh, a special website which aims to provide contacts for magicians and presumably other entertainers but certainly magicians to get bookings with the general public the idea was that you could register all your details for free you could put um, the type of show that you want to uh, you're interested in doing you can put the area that you want to work in the range of fees that you normally charge the type of things that you do and details about your business and so on and so forth didn't cost anything to do that but um, then what happens is people the general public when they're looking for a magician if they go to the BART website they put in the the, the details and um, then the software tries to find as many of the people on their books that are a rough match to what this person or people are looking for in terms of entertainment. And it sends the individual entertainers information about this potential booker. You then can type into the software, you type in your, your details about what you can offer this person and you send your uh, quote, if you like, directly off to the booker. In order to do that, you have to buy some credits. And they're not particularly expensive, but you buy some credits and you use three credits each time you decide that you do want to contact the booker. It's only You only pay for that initial first contact. After that, you can go backwards and forwards with the same person and there's no extra charge. But that initial contact 
um, is something that you do have to pay for. Now, I wonder, because there are quite a few websites that purport to do this type of thing. And this one, it's a very unusual name, Bark. That's what it's called, Bark. Very unusual name. And um, I, I wondered to start with whether anybody would, would actually use it because I've, I can remember about three or four years ago there was a similar type of website and I registered and I got about one inquiry from it and that was it. It never really went anywhere. So I was quite surprised when I started to get quite a few inquiries. In fact, the inquiries are coming through fairly consistently. Uh, different types of show, but all shows mainly that, I, that I, were relevant to me for sure. Uh, and you find yourself spending quite a lot of time typing these things off and sending them off. So in terms of getting the inquiries through the, the website, Bark is obviously doing a good job. Unfortunately, however, I have yet to actually get a booking from it. And uh, I was talking to a magic friend of mine who is also on Bark, and, and he was having a very similar experience quite a good throughput but virtually no bookings and we were discussing about well why what is the reason uh there must be some reason why the the number of just in percentage terms if for nothing other no other reason you would think that you would get one or two bookings but so far i haven't had any at all and i find that rather strange so I, I was trying to analyse it, and in our discussion, my friend and I, we, we, we sort of worked out that maybe it's because the Bark website is attracting the wrong type of customer for us. Because if you think about it, the person, the, the member of the lay public, goes to the website and puts in once the rough details of what they want. They may not have thought this through accurately. They may not have done any research. It's a bit like going to an agent and saying... I need a magician for this event, and then just leaving it with them. It's it's kind of the equivalent of that, isn't it? Only you're doing it yourself. You're entering in what you want as an entertainer, and then you get start to get quotes coming through from individual entertainers who have seen it on Bark and who have paid the credits to send their quote through. But maybe the people who are, who are going to Bark in order to try and find an entertainer are really not that totally convinced that they need a magician in the first place but they may just think oh, it would be quite interesting to find out how much it costs or maybe they're looking simply for the cheapest quote and that's certainly not going to be me um, I think when people go to comparison websites and this is in a sense is it almost like a comparison website then because of the way that you are channeled into replying in the, the sort of set way that the software of Bark allows you to reply then basically if they get half a dozen quotes back for a particular event, all the magicians are going to basically be saying the same thing. And so the only differentiation really is going probably going to be the price. So if people going to Bark are looking for the best value, they're always going to go perhaps with the cheapest price, which might account for why, certainly in my case and in my friend's case, we're not getting any bookings because we're just not the cheapest in our area. Now, I'd be really interested to know uh, whether anybody else has had experience of Bark and whether any of you have had good experiences in terms of getting the shows. And if so, why you think that is. Um, please do contact me because it's one of these things I'm sort of umming and ahhing about whether to stay on it. Is it worth all the effort of typing in all the stuff every time uh, and sending them off and paying the credits to, in order to get the, the quotes out there? 
or sh should I hang on in there? Will it come right eventually? If anybody's been uh, um, already on BART for perhaps some time, I don't know how long it's been in existence, but if they've been on it for a while and have had some success, I'd love it if you could get in contact and let me know. In the September issue of Magic Scene, there was an article called New Dogs, Old Tricks. And it was written by um, a guy called Ian Smith, in which he was looking at the way certain magicians have looked back at uh, magic from the past in order to find good new material for their present-day acts. And the way that there is a huge wealth, as we all really know, if we think about it for long enough, there's a huge wealth of material that uh, is not modern, but which can be adapted and turned into something that is acceptable for today's audiences. And um, the two of the magicians that uh, that Ian Smith actually quotes quite a lot were Dennis Baer, uh, the German magician, and the American Steve Cohen, who um, is very well known for his wonderful um, sort of parlour show that he does at the Waldorf Astoria in New York. And it was very interesting because there was something that Steve Cohen was quoted as saying about new tricks. And this is what he said. He said, the unfamiliarity of a new routine causes you to be extremely present, both mentally and physically. Now, I thought this was a really interesting statement. What he's saying is that when you take a new item which you're going to put into your act, the fact that it's new and unfamiliar to you really does mean that you have to start to concentrate when you're performing it. You, it's not just second nature. It doesn't just... The tricks that you've been doing for years, you kind of do them almost on autopilot sometimes, which may not be a good thing. You know, it may well be that uh, when you do a trick that you've done thousands of times, you start to lose an edge with it. But when you have a new trick, and we all, you know this if you if you ever introduce a new item into your act... It's always the same. You always feel slightly more tense, perhaps, about doing it. You might be excited about doing it because it's something new and fresh. But there'll also be a certain frisson of danger attached to it. Will it go well? Will I fluff it up? You know, will, will audiences like it? Will it simply work for me? And with new tricks, it's sometimes you get to the point where you don't put a new trick in because of that uncertainty which, of course, is a great pity. And I think this is what Steve Cohen is saying. He's saying it, when you the unfamiliarity of a new item really does mean that you have to think about it more, you concentrate on it more, and you put perhaps more into it, and that that's a good thing. Now, it would never be a good idea, perhaps, to take an entirely new act and have all new tricks, because that's too much. But taking one item and putting it into a perhaps in the middle of a set where the rest of the magic around it you know really well, is the, probably the right way to do it because you can relax the stuff around it more and then concentrate on just getting right the one new item. So it, when you do perhaps put new stuff into your act, how do you feel about that? I, I know for me, and I've said this before to people when we I've been discussing this, but when you get a, a new item, especially if you're doing strolling magic, and you, you want to really want to try it out. So you get the props, you put them in your jacket and you think, right, I'll, I'll do that trick tonight. I'll try it out. And of course, for us strolling magicians, it's, it's fantastic 
because we can try stuff out several times in one evening and you very quickly get to know whether it's any good, whether it needs tweaking at all. But what I've discovered, and this is probably true of other people, but it's certainly true of me, if I don't perform that trick fairly early on in the evening, uh, the chances are I won't do it at all. I lose the will. I get into my comfort zone with all the things that I know work really well, that I'm very familiar with. And then I kind of think, oh, well, I never got around to it tonight. And sometimes that means that trick never gets into my act, even though it might have been a really good trick. I just didn't break through that barrier. And the unfamiliarity of it put me off to the point where I didn't do it because it was like putting on old slippers. It's, it feels much nicer to do the old stuff that I know under any conditions, will definitely entertain and will work well. So how do you feel about that? Do you shy away from unfamiliar tricks or do you go searching for them? Do you find that excitement, if you like, of something new spurs you on and you really enjoy that? Or do you shy away from it and think, whoa, no, way too risky, especially when you're being paid money to do a show? I was thinking the other day, I wonder how important a live dem of a trick is for for a magician when he's considering buying it. Now, I don't mean a live dem as in uh, an online video dem that's done live. I don't mean that. I mean actually face-to-face with the dealer who's selling it. How important is that? If you think about how it used to be, in years gone by, the only way to see a trick actually in action was to go to a convention go up to the dealer stand and say, hello, can you show me that? And point to an item and let them do it for you. Now, watching that dem very quickly would make up your mind whether you wanted it or not. And of course, some people are very, very good at deming on stands and and other magic dealers, quite frankly, are not. And they do a positive disservice to the product because they dem it so badly and it puts people off from buying it, perhaps. But that was really the only way that you could ever get to see what it did, unless you happened to see a friend of yours doing it in your show or something like that. But other than that, you you didn't see it done live, which meant that you had to rely on the written written, um, description of the trick. And you would paint a mental image for yourself from what you were told in the description as to what it was like, and then had to try and work out from that whether it was any good or not. These days, of course, uh, with all the online dems that there are available, the need to to see a live dem at a convention over the counter has been, I think, largely removed. In fact, if you look at the quality of the dems, and I've talked before about video dems that I think are a bit dishonest because they are so beautifully produced and are such Hollywood-style theatrical pieces of movie theatre that that you lose track of the fact that actually they're trying to show you a trick which you might want to buy to use yourself. But nevertheless, um, in terms of getting your excitement up for an item, watching a dem is certainly very, very powerful when it's done professionally. Maybe it's done under certain conditions which makes the trick look miraculous. And again, that's one one of the things that you have to be aware of, isn't it? that just because it looks good on the, if you like, on your computer screen doesn't mean to say that it's got great angles and it'll look great from an audience standing around you. But all that having been said, the need for you to go to a convention and go into the dealer hall and stand around and wait while the dealer deals with several other people until finally you get to the front 
then to ask watch to, to, uh, to ask to have it demmed for you so you can watch it and then you're under that pressure now that the, the dealer has specifically done it for you performed it for you you feel a kind of a pressure oh now i'm embarrassed if i don't want it or you might be feel you've got to buy it because he's demmed it and so on and so forth whereas when you watch it online all that is taken away you can look at it dispassionately you can watch it as many times as you like you can think about it coolly and rationally you can go back to it two days later and have another look it's 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 all much more relaxing and i think that that is one of the reasons why at so many conventions now the dealer halls are just not as busy as they used to be they just don't have that huge hubbub of excitement that they used to have I mean, even Blackpool which has more dealers present than probably any other convention in the world and there are a lot of people go to the convention you know 3,000 people turning up to the convention yet the number of people who are actually doing business in the dealer hall in terms of buying a lot of stuff is nowhere near the number that used to because people have already bought they've already seen the stuff online they don't need to see that dealer dem so is it important to you do you need to see a, a dem live at a convention if you don't is that why you're probably more likely to be in the cafe having a cake and a, and a cup of coffee than you are spending the spare time between two lectures in the dealer hall i suspect that probably it is and it's it's one of the reasons why certainly for me anyway attending conventions as a dealer and not doing anything else just being a dealer has simply ceased to be worthwhile when you're a commercial close-up performer there are lots of different things that you you need to consider in order to make your job um, easier for yourself and also to do it well and one of the most commonly asked questions, of course, is how do you how do you approach a table or how do you approach a group? And I often think that that the answer to that question is not actually just one answer. There are lots of different answers because a lot of the time it depends on what stage of the evening you're actually at at any given moment. Because I always think that the hardest group or table to start with is the very first one of the evening. And there are a number of reasons for this. Um, one of the reasons is that if you're doing a mix and mingle, for instance, at a drinks reception, then the chances are that some of the people will have only just arrived. They may still have their coats on. They may have had a bad journey. They may not know their sort of environment, the, the venue that they're in. They may not have been there before, so they feel slightly disconcerted. They may not know many of the people there. And all these things can lead certain individuals to feel slightly tense initially. They're not relaxed at that point. They haven't had a drink yet. They haven't met anybody they know yet. And if you rush up and try to entertain them in a very loud and and uh, sort of uh, noisy way, you, you quite often it can have a counterproductive effect. You think you're being a great entertainer, whereas actually you've picked on the wrong people. So I think choosing that first group, you want that first group, especially as I say, if it's very early in the evening, to go as well as possible. Because not only if it goes well, does that make you feel good as the performer, but the vibes that you'll get from other people around who are standing around the group that you're actually entertaining, if they see these people relaxing, laughing, interacting with you, having a great time, then when you then subsequently approach the other people who saw how you got on with the last group, 
then their defences are down already. They're, they're less likely to give you a hard time. They're, they're more likely to welcome you straight away. If they see you doing poorly, if you see the people stony-faced or not reacting or almost sort of turning away from you, trying to get rid of you or anything like that, if they perceive that you're not doing well with another group because you chose the wrong group, they weren't relaxed and you just didn't do very well with them, it can in some ways affect the other groups that you next try to go to. And that's a real pity because then you have to work twice as hard in order to get up ahead of steam. And I think for us as performers, if we've only just arrived, well, it's a bit like we have to warm up too, don't we? You may have had, as the performer, you may have had a bad journey, being a bit stressy because you couldn't find the venue and being almost late. There are lots of reasons why you might not feel up to it that night. You might have a cold coming on or you've got a bit of a sore throat or you're just basically tired. You've had a long day. All these things kind of crowd in can crowd in on you and and so you need to warm up too so choosing the right group at the beginning so that you do well is a huge boost to you and gets you in the mood and gets you firing on all cylinders nice and early so i'm what i'm always looking for is for me anyway this is how it works i quite often don't like doing a group right in the middle of a room i like to do a group a group that's perhaps on the edges of of the um of the main bulk of people Something about being right in the middle straight away initially that I just don't like. I want to kind of work my way towards the middle rather than starting in the middle. And um, it enables me to get warmed up because I feel not so many people are surrounding me and I'm not feeling so almost intimidated by the, my, by the circumstances of my own performance for this first group. And if it's tables, I'm often looking for a table where everybody is present if it's very early on in the meal. In other words, half the people aren't out of the room. I'm looking for a table where people are chatting in an animated way, hopefully. They look relaxed. They're not in the middle of something that they would perceive to be very important, such as opening a gift that's been left for them on the table or somebody going around pouring the wine. Oh, very important, that is. You want to make sure you get the right wine. Things like this, which are when people first sit down at a table... They're kind of obsessed with, you know, what's this little gift and uh, what are all these knives and forks? What do I do with all of these? Or who's who's go, who's pouring the wine? I, I need some wine. Quick, give me some wine. There are all sorts of things that they're bothered about. If you approach that table when a lot of the people are in that state, then they're probably not going to give you the best attention and they're not going to react to you because they're not relaxed. You have to start somewhere, of course. You, you, not every table can be in the middle of your allotted time or towards the end when you're lubricated and well oiled and so are they it, it it needs to be chosen so that that first table makes you feel good and you only do that by observing standing and observing looking at the way the people are, are reacting and then decisively deciding that is the table i'm going to go to and and the same with the group i wouldn't go uh, in the same way that i wouldn't go to a group in the middle i wouldn't go perhaps to a very big group but neither would I go to, as my first group, a very small group of two people. I prefer groups of four. For groups of four have a nice dynamic, usually. Two, the two people can feel very intimidated. And if, as I said earlier, it's early in the evening and they're not relaxed, then going to a group of two could be a mistake. So these are just some of the things that you need to think about. And I think choosing that first group is really key to, to whether you hit the ground running and start off really well.
Last weekend, I attended a wedding fair, and um, it was a fairly small affair in the sense that the number of exhibitors, there were probably only about a dozen different exhibitors, of which I was one. And not only that, but there were no um, double-ups. So there was only one florist, one cake maker, cake maker, one magician, which is good news, uh, one marquee salesman, one fireworks person, and so on and so forth. And the number of people who came, the people had to register in advance to attend the wedding fair. They didn't have to pay, but they did have to register in advance so the organisers could you know, predict how many people came. And although there weren't huge numbers... They, it just so happened that they, they came spread out over the, the four or five hours that, that was available to them. People came at all different times. And so uh, you could always talk to just about everybody who came. You didn't miss people because you were busy with one person and you missed three sets of other people um, because you just couldn't get to them before they'd left. So in that sense, it was very good. But one thing that I did notice was the marked way, uh, the difference in the way that the various exhibitors dealt with the public. Some were very interactive with them, others were not. Some talked very easily and talked at length and obviously in a very interesting way, and others just stood there and virtually did nothing at all. And I thought, that's fascinating, isn't it? Because the people who stood there and did nothing at all, if they talked and virtually nobody, unless people talked to them, then if they didn't go out and seek the people to talk to, and they probably went home and thought, well, that wasn't any good. Whereas the people who engaged a minute, people came in, they smiled at them and they made polite conversation. Those are the ones probably that were getting the business. And that is key, isn't it, for all of us. If you want to do business with people, you actually need to engage with them. Right, we're out of time. Uh, it's been very quick, very quick half an hour. Funny how half an hour can seem fast sometimes and slow other times. I really hope you've enjoyed the various topics that I've chatted about this time and I'll look forward to, uh, to seeing you hopefully in a month's time for the next podcast. Bye for now.